0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I speak to the brilliant Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is a prison abolitionist and prison scholar and the director of the Center for Place, Culture and Politics and Professor of Geography at the City University of New York. She is author of several excellent books, including Golden Gulag, Prison Surplus, Crisis and Opposition in Globalising California, and more recently, Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation. We discuss everything to do with abolition, including who is profiting from the way that the criminal justice system is currently set up, how existing uh, institutions within the criminal justice system serve to support and reinforce capitalist social relations, as well as what a socialist conception of justice looks like and how we can begin to build that now. Thank you, as always, to all our patrons who make this show possible. Please do consider signing up to become a patron at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. And we need every bit of support that we can get right now. Obviously, things are difficult for everyone right now. So if you don't feel like you can support us on Patreon, then please do consider sharing this episode on social media, tagging at Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now, here's a quick word from our sponsor before this excellent episode with Ruth Wilson-Gilmore. This episode of World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Blood and Money, War, Slavery, Finance and Empire by David McNally. In this groundbreaking study, scholar David McNally reveals the true story of money's origins in the buying and selling of slaves and the waging of war. Find Blood & Money at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20, respectively. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, we are incredibly lucky to be joined by the brilliant Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is a prison abolitionist and prison scholar and the director of the Centre for Place Culture and Politics and professor of geography and earth and environmental sciences at the City University of New York, as well as the author of several books, which we will be discussing today. So how are you doing today, Ruthie? Thank you so much for joining me.
1: I'm doing really well, Grace. Thanks for having me on your show. Fantastic. It's great to have
0: you here. So I just wanted to really open this conversation by asking you what abolition means to you. Because um, whilst there will be a lot of listeners here who are very familiar with the literature on abolition, there'll be some who aren't. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions as to what it actually means. So can you explain what it means to you?
1: So abolition is... um, best way I can summarize it is life in rehearsal. So what it is, is remaking the world from what people are already doing in order to reduce the forces of organized abandonment and organized violence that result in such things as millions and millions of people in prison and detention, millions and millions of people on the move because of becoming refugees for climate war, other reasons that result in people fighting for workplace protections and opportunities that result in people being houseless or uh, marginally housed. All of these are issues that really coalesce in the abolitionist vision of a world without prisons. To have a world without prisons means that we must, as we do, attend to the many configurations that produce people who are vulnerable to criminalization.
0: And a second question for you, which is potentially quite a big one. Can we abolish prisons without abolishing capitalism?
1: No. It's a very small question, actually. <laughs> okay, whatever. Well, no. It was a <laughs> quick answer. No, a, no, no, we can't. And um, I know the skeptical listener will immediately say, ah, but there have been non capitalist societies that have had prisons. So clearly, we know, we are not fools or naive, that being not capitalist does not result in undoing criminalization and sequestration. But the way that prison has come to be a central catch-all solution to the problems of deepening inequality and all-purpose solutions to the problems that result from deepening inequality show us that we cannot undo prisons without undoing capitalism. Indeed, there are two parts of the same path.
0: I want to kind of go into this a little bit more because I think it's really important for us to understand the links between um, the prison system, the criminal justice system and capitalism. And the first and kind of most superficial way that we can understand this link is just by thinking about who profits from the criminal justice system. So can you go into that a little bit? Who is profiting from the way that we organize our societies at the moment when it comes to criminal justice?
1: Well, you know, my answer is going to surprise you, because any number of people listening will presume that those who run most prisons and jails around the world where prison is widely used are private operators. While that is true in the UK, it is not true in most other places, not in the United States, not in Brazil, less so in South Africa, uh, not in India not in Russia. Those are all places that have huge inequality and huge prison populations. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, so what's happening here if there isn't this tidy relationship of profit to the carceral? And the answer is a little complicated, but the complexity shows us how many different fronts we can and must fight on. So the first answer really focuses on where The resources, the money resources come from that enable people to be locked up. And they come from state treasuries, federal treasuries, government treasuries. In other words, they come from the social wage. They're part of the skim from the pockets of all of the people who work and all of the people who pay taxes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, so then what happens to those money resources? What turns them into the possibility of profit for some people? And the answer is, most uh, strikingly, that a certain aspect of the state, in all of its complexity, one aspect of the state, which is the carceral state, grows and grows and grows and grows. So that aspect of the state growing means that more and more people are dependent on that aspect of the state for their jobs. So they're dependent for salary revenue, which is not profit, but it's still money moving from one hand to another. There are those who sell all kinds of goods and services to the prison system, uh, food and clothing and uh, building construction to, to build out prisons. They get both salaries and profit out of it. And then those parasites who have managed to capture the management of prisons as part of the, I guess people call it the neoliberal turn. uh, I think it's a fascist turn myself, then can turn the revenue that's spent on keeping people in cages for part of all of their lives into profit. And Uh, when I call them parasites, I mean it. None of those people who do that work, none of those firms that do that work care what kind of work they do. They're apolitical and yet active in making certain that there are certain revenue streams that they can capture. If it were a school, they would do the same thing. If it were an art Center. They would do the same thing. So we have an ideological problem that has resulted in the all-purpose use and widespread application of criminalization to solve the social problems that have been brought about by increasing inequality, which is to say organized abandonment, which cannot be managed other than through the forces of organized violence, which are the forces of police, prisons, and military.
0: I find this point really fascinating because ordinarily a lot of people would think of the classic definition of of the state as something with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. And the power to imprison is such a big component of that. And yet that is actually contracted out to other private organizations. And I think this is one of the ways in which studying the criminal justice system can actually teach us a lot about neoliberalism. What do you think that this relationship with these kind of you know, private contractors can tell us about the links between public and private power, states and markets, under neoliberalism?
1: Mm, that's a great question. And certainly, again, to focus on the UK situation, where indeed, private contractors have captured a good deal of the business of managing prisons, does give us some insight. Into how the more expanded definition of the state as having not just the legitimate monopoly on violence, but its ability to delegate that is what matters. That the state delegates mm-hmm. legitimate violence. So it can delegate it through contracts. And we see this in many, 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 many configurations. In different polities. So the UK, again, as I said, is different from the US and the US itself has got at least 52 different jurisdictions, uh, plus 3,100 county jails. So those are, are quite varied and so forth. But you, you've actually pointed towards something more expansive even than that particular question. And that is how, uh, for example, militaries have, um, entered into uh, contractual relations with mercenaries in, in mm. many parts of the world. And the outsourcing the existential threat of being in the line of fire helps many of these big, powerful imperial countries like the US and even today, the UK appear to their polities that they're not actually fighting the wars they're actually fighting there are so many ways to sort of stretch this out. And I want, I want to raise one other thing here that's going to seem uh, sort of marginal, but it's really central also to the discussion we're having about neoliberalism. And it's this, people who have had uh, steady opportunities for wage employment for part or all of their working life, people like me, are in the US and Canada and many other places compelled to agree to defer some of their wages until later and that's called a pension mm. so that deferral so it's not that the you know the state has you know compelled all capitals to put money into a general fund that will then be paid out to retired workers in their golden years to ease their comfort and rest but rather that workers themselves are supposed to defer part of their compensation, i.e. pay into a pension fund as they go along. Their employers match that amount somehow. And then eventually that pension fund will be available in a highly differentiated way, depending on what kind of work the person did and what kind of firm they work for or institution and so forth. That money will be available for retired people to draw down. And it's not an equal opportunity for rest in old age that pensions should be. Mm -hmm. All right. So these pension funds, of course, have these fiduciary managers who oversee vast quantity of, of money that is supposed to be available as people like me get to retirement. And I'm 72 years old, so I'm pretty close Uh, In in many countries of the world, I would not be allowed to work anymore. But in the United States, you can work till you drop, which is what my father did, my mother-in-law and so forth. So the pension funds then become part of the entire international financial institution constellation that roam the earth looking for profitable investments To make on behalf of their future pensioners. So for example, I'll give you two. One, there's a big uh, uh, public service, not-for-profit service, I should say, pension fund in the United States called TIAA-CREF. Those letters used to stand for something meaningful, but that's its name now. TIAA-CREF has been implicated in land grabs, In a good deal of Latin America, Mm. on the African continent and elsewhere, pushing direct producers off the land so the land can be transformed to, of all things, biofuels, right? So so greenwashing, as it were, the the fact of dispossession. So that's one example. Another example is that uh, one of the biggest prison and private security firms in the world, it's, it's most famously known by its name, G-Force, but it's got a new name now, is wholly owned by a firm that's based in Pennsylvania in the United States. And one of their biggest investors from anywhere in the world is the Canadian Public Pension mm. Fund. So you see how all of these things go together. And these are all reasons I hope our listeners who agree with us, we have a world to win, um, show that we can't undo prison without doing undoing capitalism, which is to say, not just changing the character of the state, but seizing it so that the good things that that kind of concentration of bureaucratic and fiscal capacity can realize, like, say, clean water or universal public education or real universal public health care can be carried out.
0: I mean, what a fantastic summary of so much stuff there. I'm going to bring us on actually to talking, this is something I wanted to talk about later, but about the links between empire and um, the criminal justice system, because you've touched on several of them there. So you spoke about the contracting out of um, military power to mercenaries and the way that that's used around the world. And you also spoke about really critically, and this is so important because it just speaks to the overlapping nature of public and private power that characterizes modern capitalism. We think that states and markets are separate and the markets are nice and good and they decide who gets what and that you know states are bad over here and they are kind of inefficient and that we should, you know, shrink them and that neoliberalism is all about shrinking and in inverted commas the state when actually looking at the criminal justice system shows the exact opposite. You see, as you mentioned, this fusion of financial, public, private power And the way that that kind of wall of money that you mentioned is used to reinforce imperialistic relations as well at the level of the world economy, as you just mentioned, in Latin America. And at that point, it becomes easy, I think, to see, well, it doesn't become easy, but I would like you to explain to us how we can see by looking at these processes, the way in which the criminal justice system actually relates to and reinforces imperialistic relations between um, core countries and peripheral ones.
1: Certainly, it's the case that as the struggle in the richer countries over enclosing those richer countries, so that people from the places that have been beset by generations of imperial and neocolonial extraction cannot themselves enter to participate economically, culturally, and politically, and so forth. Whether we're talking about Fortress Europe, whether we're talking about the border wall in the United States, whether we're talking about the denationalization of many people in the state of Assam in India, or the denationalization of people in the UK of Jamaican descent who have been deported. All of these are uh, examples of how criminalization works to uh, secure and protect those whose opinions and votes and other attributes matter in the accumulation and allocation of income and wealth. So we have, for example, the cases that are all over the planet now of imperial forces like the United States outsourcing long distance migrant detention Work to Mexico and along the countries of Central America, all the way, um, all the way down along that part of the Atlantic seaboard, or you know Australia, keeping long-distance migrants uh, in detention on an island, or the EU, which has, uh, it, although the EU might have been brought into being uh, as an anti-war, which is to say an anti-Germany invading France again. Formation is itself of you know, imperial strength, and it outsources to places like Turkey and Lebanon and elsewhere, the work of holding people under uh, a broad set of um, authorities that are indistinguishable from criminalization in the kind of more ordinary social context that we, we, we tend to think about it. One of the problems that many people have in linking analytically and politically the fate of long distance migrants with the fate of people who are seized, tried and punished within nation states is many people imagine, ah, long distance migrants are innocent and the people who are seized and and convicted of certain crimes are guilty. As though innocence were not a condition that changes, that those who define it are not those who are trying to enjoy it. And as though somehow this line, this bright line between innocence and not innocence is somehow the way that people can morally and physically and socially and politically justify putting human beings in cages for part or all of their lives. This is a problem that stretches and meshes a good deal of the globe, although it's very different in different places, and that that is something that gives me cause um, for hope. I also want to say something else about imperialism, and that is I, I recently read a pretty terrific book by a couple of guys in international relations. And I have to confess, I don't remember either one's name, but the title of the book was Outsourcing Empire. And it's about, you know, the East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, the Royal African Company, all of those capitalist institutional formations that were designed and chartered by states to go forth to get wealth and bring it back, bring it back to whatever imperial metropole, be it St. Petersburg, or London, or Madrid, or you name it. And one of the arguments that, that these guys make in their book is how uh, unclean the line was between the kind of mercantile uh, aggression that these companies um, enacted and the military aggression that went hand in hand with it. So if we look at what happened with Portugal, what happened with Spain, what happened with Britain, and so on and so forth, we see a pattern, a pattern of very big and very, very, very successful wealth-extracting corporations carrying out their work, sometimes with their own private militaries, and sometimes with the public military at their side, as it were, the monarch's military, the parliament's military, the state's military. And these scholars argue that after a a kind of blip in the 19th century, where uh, after the concert of Vienna and all the empires decided to keep their military activity sort of closer in hand, there was one last flowering of the public-private militarization of these kinds of adventures in the uh, aftermath of the Berlin Conference and the carving up, once again, of Africa. And the most um, uh, obvious and notorious case of this was, of course, Belgium, King Leopold in Congo, but it was true everywhere, not just there that was just the most notorious case. But it's back again. And this is the point. The mm. kinds of relations have never gone away. If we look at what's happening in Basra, uh, now the redevelopment of that city, we can see the presence of so many private military operators working on behalf of capital on the one hand and with the blessing of a number of imperial states on the other.
0: I also wanted you to talk a little bit about your idea of carceral geography um, and how that links to Marxist theory, managing surplus populations and and, uh, the discussion that we've just been having.
1: Sure. Um, For a few years in the 1990s, the contemporary abolition movement, the one that I and Angela Davis and many other people, many, many, many other people have been part of, used a phrase that we got from the great Mike Davis to talk about the landscape that demanded our analysis. And the phrase we used was prison industrial complex. And we Hmm. used that phrase to deliberately, you know, invoke military industrial complex and the sort of state and the sort of industrial policy and so on and so forth derive that would derive and did derive from that formation, the military-industrial complex. Now, the military-industrial complex is something I actually studied to shreds when in the mid-1990s, so that I could understand its extent intensity uh, throughout the United States. And What struck me and and many of my comrades was how many different kinds of people and places and differently, as it were, uh, resourced social actors, which is to say protagonists, were involved in making the military-industrial complex and keeping it going. So beyond uh, military bases or, you know, uniform and uh, civilian personnel. There were like all of the intellectuals who would do everything from make policies around warfare to design better weapons to oppose policies around warfare. Um, The uh, boosters in towns that would want a base or not want a base, huge reconfigurations of the landscape for the purpose of, producing hydroelectric power that could uh, deliver sufficient power to the national labs, which are all military or military-related labs, as well as to bases and so forth. So this all told us that anywhere we looked, we could find some evidence that we could then build some kind of campaign around. we turned this to prison and thought about it the same way. So we didn't think about prison industrial complex as find the profit and that will explain everything, but rather think about all of this constellation of Mm -hmm. relations of dependency of opposition and so forth. And think then about the sorts of campaigns we might put in place to mount a fight because the point of all this analysis is to figure out what to do, not to just talk about it on the radio. So so carceral geography is uh, the term that came to mind for me in the late 90s as one that would kind of insist on the groundedness of all of these things, that people, to take a turn from Marx, make places but not under conditions of their own choosing. Mm. And then thinking about the surpluses that go into um, the production of prison after prison after prison gives us the opportunity to think, well, these surpluses arranged differently in different configurations to different purposes could be great. There's nothing wrong with the surplus. It's what happens to the surplus that is the problem.
0: Before we do go on to talking about what we're going to do about it, um, I just have one more question uh, in this realm of analysis, because your analysis is, is so acute and I think helps us to understand a lot of different aspects of capitalism that are often neglected. I want you to talk a little bit about your idea of organized abandonment and how the criminal justice system plays a role, you know, not just, as you said, in kind of supporting profits for private corporations, but also in around kind of disciplining and managing surplus populations and also disciplining and managing populations that have been physically or cognitively or emotionally injured as a result of capitalist social relations.
1: Mm -hmm. So um, that term, organized abandonment, is one that has had a kind of loopy history. Once upon a time, a long time ago, a big king of capitalist management, a guy called Peter Drucker, argued that not-for-profit institutions like hospitals should narrow their scope of activity, you know, avoid mission creep. And he called that organized abandonment. Some years later, my dear colleague and comrade David Harvey used the phrase just in passing to talk about how the spatial fix that gives us some insights into the movement of capital you know, through the land as well as through the built environment, can't be accomplished without some you know, really uh, significant collaboration between and among local states, state states, regional governments, capitals, you know, unions sometimes, and so forth. So for him, organized abandonment was that. So I took up organized abandonment from him and it made it, you know, a central part of my thinking, developing, I think, the concept beyond um, where he went to consider how every experience of vulnerability, of vulnerability not only to criminalization, but also to dispossession and premature death. Um, happens not by happenstance, but because a series of decisions that could have been otherwise come together to push certain people out of the path of protection or opportunity. Right, So put most abstractly, that's the way of thinking, organized abandonment, that it doesn't just happen by happenstance. Mm. People take decisions, and the results can be predicted. In fact, they can be known. I mean, the deindustrialization of anywhere produced certain outcomes and harms, all of which could have been predicted. Mm. Like They're not a mystery. It's not a mystery at all even though we write book after book after book after book after book about it. So organized abandonment then uh, casts people adrift, not unlike, uh, let's think of like the enclosures in England and Scotland and Ireland, cast people adrift. And the people cast adrift then have fewer and fewer options for what they will do or can do. And the forces of organized violence contour those options into particular pathways. You know, do this or you'll be arrested. Mm. And it's not that in every case a police officer walks up to such a, 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 an adrift person and says directly to them, do this or else you'll be criminalized. But the outcome is already there clearly in the surface of the city, in the countryside, we can see it in the cameras, you know, CCTV and the kinds of signage and everything that tell people all the time that criminalization and threat are always over their heads, always over their heads. Hmm. So one of the things that I've been um, trying to sort out and learn from my comrades around the world, how other ways to think about it, is that the devastation produced by organized abandonment and the presence of organized violence, as it were, just off stage or right center stage where these things have happened, compels me to think about other kinds of relationships that are less individualized. So mm-hmm. the example I gave, you just think one guy wandering, you know, victim of enclosures, here's a cop. So let's think about them more collectively, and how um, the struggle, for example, to to gain or to extend organized workers' power, unions, has been uh, shaped so much through history, and very much in this period of neoliberalism, by you know, constant threats of organized violence, you know, everywhere. That means that unions have, as part of their difficulty, figuring out how to get past criminalization and organized violence to realize whatever they're trying to realize for their members. Mm -hmm. They have to do that. And some unions see it and some of them don't. And, of course, people will say, but the police have unions. They do. And they have unions to protect the possibility of organized violence being a principal recipient of money resources in the form of salary from the state. Other unions are trying to realize other things. Nurses' unions are trying to realize the possibility of giving their patients adequate and free and appropriate health care. That's different. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of the union matters.
0: Totally. Probably, you know, the most important element, I guess, of abolition in terms of kind of thinking about solutions are these questions of prevention and how we respond to organized abandonment, how we respond to dispossession in a way that, um, as you say, uh, from a kind of communitarian perspective, from a, a socialistic perspective, rather than an ind- individualistic perspective. And there's lots of, you know, stuff that needs to be put in place at the, the national level to facilitate that. You know, we need good public services. We need to be, get people housed, fed, etc. But I'm particularly interested in what, stuff is going on now at the level of the community um, to support people who are in this place of having been abandoned? What are some like real world alternatives to just uh, punishment and brutality that exist within communities who, you know, often live with the daily reality of, of violence, but have figured out how to manage that themselves?
1: Right. There's an astonishing... A array of resources available. I can't tell you how many languages they're in, but you and I are speaking English and these resources are all available in English that are um, really focused on such questions as what to do about domestic violence, how people can uh, prevent bad things from happening before they happen rather than have better punishment of perpetrators after they happen. So there's something called the Storytelling Organizing Project, which is available. Um, their findings are available online. These are people under the you know, brilliant kind of coordination of my colleague and comrade Mimi Kim, who ran around the world talking to people about, well, what do you do when things get dicey? Things get frightening. And I should also say for skeptical listeners that many of us who came to abolition got there because, not because we hadn't expe- uh, experienced terrible, horrible things and murder, but because we were tired of every inadequate way that the forces of organized violence and their masters treated all of these uh, vulnerabilities and we thought we can, we can do better and people have done better. And so let's get going down this path. So that's an example. Another person mm-hmm. whose work I think has, has uh, had a very high profile justifiably so lately is Mariam Kaba, whose book, We Do This Till We Free Us, mm-hmm. which was published by Haymarket last year. It's an excellent resource. And anything that Mariam touches is excellent. Mm-hmm. Project Nia, Survived and Punished, you name it. There are great things, Interrupting Criminalization. Again, these resources are available, they're online. They're there for people to, to look at and use. I know there are people in the UK who have been deeply influenced by Mariam's work, who are trying to build an abolitionist uh, future there. Um, Sam Lamble and others are doing you know, remarkable work. I also want to tell just a little story, and that is, it is not surprising and yet unfortunate that people hear abolition and even people who are very, very well-read and smart about the world and how it works, imagine that all we mean is a naive idea that tomorrow we roll out to all the prisons and jails and unlock the gates and (laughs) say, sorry, we didn't mean it. <laughs> you know, and nothing else changes. And it's like, that's absurd. Yeah. That is a total absurdity, but that's what people think. That's what mm-hmm. Really smart people think. So, which is to say over-educated people who ought to be able to think better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is, this is obviously something that we come across a lot
0: with regards to prisons, with regards to borders, lots of this stuff. I mean, it is interesting though. And I am interested in this question as to what, justice looks like in a socialist society, right? Because, you know, prison is supposed to serve all these functions. It's supposed to be a deterrent. It's not a deterrent. It doesn't work as a deterrent. It's supposed to provide rehabilitation. It doesn't provide rehabilitation. But it's also supposed to satisfy these conditions of kind of keeping people safe and promoting justice. Mm -hmm. We all know about the horrible things that can happen in situations where the social institutions designed to distribute justice break down often it leads to conflict and war what does a kind of socialist conception of justice look like and how can we begin to think about building that even if it means literally building it from the ground
1: up Mm -hmm. well guarantee is probably the first word we have to throw out Mm. just 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 to say but how can we do it Mm. is to build up from the ground um what people try to do in enhancing the mutual dependence that solidarity should be. And that that solidarity then requires a number of different kinds of political and cultural interactions that can be really difficult, but then produce a um, higher sense of trust that then renews the dependency that we all actually should be working for. Not independence, mm-hmm. it's dependency that we need. Like we really need to be dependent. My favorite example, I talk about a lot is the MTA in uh, Brazil and the MTA, this is the landless work. Yeah. Movement, I remember that, yeah. is is really, it's, it's an astonishing uh, and constantly uh, changing and, you know, strictly speaking, evolving formation of probably a couple of million members now. It's been around for 40 years. What do they do? They do land occupations. But when they do a land occupation, then they build something. They build an entire community, which is to say the people who occupy the land uh, come to make it. And it therefore puts me in mind of the kinds of things Du Bois wrote about in Black Reconstruction in America where he described the sorts of uh, institutions and capacities that formerly enslaved people made for themselves in the South. Mm. And it's like, well, if they could make it, it means they already had ideas about it and were already doing some of these things and they made more of that rather than they waited for somebody to come with a blueprint and a book. MST has schools. It's got a big school for organizers. It produces cadres. It also has done a lot of relatively recent work in solidarity with long-distance migrants who kind of pitch up in in Rio or uh, Sao Paulo by squatting uh, buildings there, MST, uh, squatting buildings there that are then made available to the long-distance migrants so they don't get caught in the snare of U.S. authorized criminalization, and mm-hmm. detention, and then have demanded that public services from, you know, the state of of Sao Paulo and, and Rio de Janeiro are made available to all of those people as well. So those are some examples of doing this work. Does that mean that, you know, miraculously, nobody will use violence as speech to harm another person? I don't think so. Mm. Figuring, instead of starting from the outlier that we're always terrified of, thinking from the possibility of building radical dependency that does not depend on us knowing one another or even liking one another, but rather feeling responsible to and from one another seems to be what is most powerful in, in many communities. I know that in South Africa, there have been very intense struggles in the so-called Shack Dwellers movement, trying to figure out how to form and maintain a social order within the community of people, some of whom come and stay and others who move through, such that the community can flourish without recourse to policing. And for a long time, for many of these communities, these self-built communities, the demand was for more policing because it seemed like the police should be able to come and, and, you know, solve these problems of aggression and and violence and theft. And then when that is not what the police were doing, people were trying to figure out how to solve things within without becoming vigilantes. So yeah. this, is, this is something people are working on. It's obviously there's nothing easy about it. But neither is what is the solution to the problems that what is was developed to uh, allegedly address. Hmm. Yeah, I mean...
0: we talk so much about capitalist realism and how it kind of um, constrains our expectations of the possible. But there's also this thing around like, and I think this is part of capitalist realism, but like the, the kind of statification of our imaginations, the fact that we just fall back on this idea that the only reason that the kind of social order or social relationships can reproduce themselves without horrendous violence is because the state is there somehow protecting us all the time. Firstly, obviously that is often not true because the state is often out there actually harming people. But secondly, most of our interactions with other human beings don't require the mediation from the state or courts or police or whatever. And historically, obviously, in, you know, indigenous communities in various different parts of the world, that has been all the more true. And this idea that we have that, you know, we're all so scared of each other Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and can't imagine a world in which we actually used, we would depend on one another, rather than you know, this individualistic and competitive world where we're constantly relying on a third party to mediate all our disputes.
1: Exactly, exactly. Mm. And I don't believe that something we call the state must always be more against me than for me. I mean, I work mm. an enormous public university. It's like a half a million students. It's enormous. I think it's a great thing. Um, there should be clean water. Should that be realized voluntaristically or in a patchwork way between and among communities? I think that's ridiculous. So mm. shouldn't there be something bigger for that? Health. Again, I'm an old lady. I've been very, 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 very ill. I hate the idea of relying on voluntarism or you know a, a, a patchwork of medical providers to give me, make available to me what I need, and yet the current health system is terrible. But mm-hmm. the idea of being free and universal suggests something, again, with the bureaucratic and fiscal capacities of what we call the state, governed differently. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, that's, that's probably the thing we'll be arguing as we build these things, as, as people already are. People already are in many places. So I want, I want to just give an example of of where we can sort of touch on actually existing problems and the energy people bring to solving those problems and connect it to abolition. And I mentioned energy um, for two reasons. One, because one of my favorite things anybody ever said in the world was when Lenin was asked, maybe around 1920, okay, man, how are you going to keep this revolution together? And Lenin said the Soviets plus electricity. Yeah. And thinking that, that you know, both of those things, electricity and the Soviets, were places where energy condenses and travels through, mm. right? So the actual electrical power and then the power of people figuring things out, collectively making decisions and acting on them. So energy is what matters. So fast forwarding to a few years ago, There in the UK, when Corbyn was still kind of big in that party, uh, and I think it was called the Momentum Movement. Yeah, Momentum, yeah. In Labour, somebody whose work I admire greatly, Owen Hatherley. I read all his books and learn enormously from him. Yeah. There's a story, I think it's toward the end or beginning of Red Metropolis, about he went to the Momentum meeting and uh, gathering conference, and they all conferred, and then they went to breakout groups, And he was disappointed to see that in the housing group that he went to, very few people showed up. But when he walked past the room with the abolitionists, it was packed. (laughs) And he said, these people are deluded. And I'm not quoting exactly, but I'm pretty close. He said, even if Diane Abbott becomes Home Secretary, they will never abolish prisons in the UK. And I thought, man, You are curious about so many things. Why didn't you go in that room? Yeah. Your curiosity to bear on what people were talking about, because the fact of the matter is for prisons to be abolished, the housing question must be solved. Mm. They're not separate. It's one question for prisons to be abolished. The asthma question has to be solved. So how the roadways go has to be solved for prison to be abolished. There are all these things that have to be solved. So we solve those questions, and in solving them, the abolition appears. You see? I
0: mean, that feels like the perfect place to end. It's not the perfect place to end, because I feel like this conversation could go on for at least another hour. But you are a very busy woman, and I don't want to take up more of your time. So thank you so much for joining me today, Ruthie. This was absolutely an amazing conversation. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye.